So typically, I think what's unfortunate here is that we start to go forward. We start to ask what can be done in the case of burnout. But I think so much wiser is to go back. Can we go upstream? This is what I usually say. Can we go upstream or then downstream? What happened to the person in terms of that person's thinking, institutional engagement, and so on, that actually led that person to a point at which not caring amid exhaustion became the modus operandi? Welcome to the Solving Resident Burnout podcast, created by resident Dr. Daniel Orlovich for interns, residents, fellows, and yes, programs too. Designed to discuss real barriers from the front line and offer practical solutions. No stuffiness, no whining, no mandatory lectures, no glazing over the real issues, no wellness guru talk, just a casual conversation about real issues affecting residents and practical solutions. Today's guest is Dr. Andrew Taggart. If you ever wondered, is work taking over my life as a resident? If you've ever wondered, am I on the right path? If you've ever wondered, can we get insight from other cultures, from other texts, from other disciplines? Then you'll really enjoy this episode. Dr. Andrew Taggart is a practical philosopher. He asks and seeks to answer the most basic questions of human existence with others around the world. In 2009, he finished a PhD, left the academic life, and moved to New York because he thought the most fundamental question of how to live needed to be brought back into our everyday lives. Each day, he speaks via Zoom with business executives, tech entrepreneurs, visual artists, and physicians throughout the U.S., Canada, and Europe about the nature of a good life. He is also the founder of Escole, whose aim is to help technologies examine what, at the bottom, they're taking for granted. His ideas have been discussed in Quartz, The Guardian, Big Think, Wisconsin Public Radio, TEDx, The Washington Post, and elsewhere. He and his wife, Alexandra, are currently exploring the American Southwest. I encourage you to check out two websites, andrewjtaggart.com, as well as the second one, ascole.com. That's A-S-K-O-L-E.com. I'll put both of those in the show notes below. So it's really interesting, but I wonder, I'm of the mind that I get immense, and I know we talked about this earlier, so I wanted to hear your thoughts. I get meaning from being a physician and helping people. So what if that helps open up when I leave the hospital, my appreciation for looking at a sunset or reading articles like you wrote as well that have enriched my life? So how do we use that meaning, the quote, good part of our job? to parlay that into something more meaningful and deeper in our life. So you might recall that I provided (laughs) my own definition of meeting when we spoke last in preparation for this conversation. So I would define meaning a little bit differently from the way that other people do. I define meaning as being in touch or in contact with a greater reality. The definition is meant to be agnostic with regard to where people stand philosophically, theologically, and otherwise. I'm not defining what being in contact with, nor am I defining what greater reality is. But I think it's right. I think it's on the right track, because when you actually think about what you call meaningful experiences, you start to realize that it was something, so to say, more than you here, and that there was some phenomenological experience you had of actually being intimately in touch with something or someone that went beyond you. 
And so that's the greater reality. That therefore ranges from community to God and anything else. So I think what's happened during the total work dispensation is, and the reason it's so tricky and a bit nefarious is that not only does total work capture what work is, it also captures what work does for us today. So you might think about articles that have been written stating that it's good for older people to continue to work because from it they have certain kinds of friendships or certain psychological benefits. This is an argument in terms of the instrumental reasons for working. Why is it good for you? But you see, it's already presupposed what I call the work society, which is one in which work wraps or binds up with it collegiality, certain kinds of friendships, community. I'm using some loose, loose language here. So that's a difficult bit. So what I'd like to do then is to try to disentangle that second bit from the total work bit. So let's come to your experience then, given that definition, given that brief exposition. Let's suppose you find yourself really helping someone for his or her own sake. And so you have this moment of contact. There's a, you know, what, what the philosopher, the, the Jewish philosopher Buber would call the I-thou. There's an I-thou relationship that seems to go beyond the medical context. Someone smiles in a certain way and it just sort of lights everything up or you feel as that you really helped in ways that are probably, you can put them in medical language, but you probably wouldn't want to. It's, it's more of an aesthetic language or a more of a ethical language in a very deep, rich way. Yeah. To my mind, that's where we're getting into talk, genuine talk about meaning. But it's not strictly the case that, if I may be splitting hairs for a moment, that that's in the work. It's as if it transcends the work. I know some listeners might be rolling their eyes at this point, but my feeling is what happens is that we have these more than mundane experiences that happen to occur, be outside of our own efforts in a kind of grace, if I may call it that, but they happen to be in the context of work, a work context. Why? Because most people are there throughout the course of a day. Right. Then there's an attribution error by my lights. They attribute that experience to the work rather than to something else. So my mystical inclination is to, to say, wow, this is actually an experience opening you up to a different possibility. The different possibility here is that you could learn how to care for human beings in various and sundry ways one of which, to be sure, would occur in this context, but others of which could occur in different contexts. There's nothing, therefore, to come back to my former claim, special about this context whatsoever. It just happened to be the case that it happens to be occurring for you here and now. Mm, I like that. In our speak, it's correlation is not causation. Yes, yes. There's a, you know, the ongoing correlations in virtue of the fact that you're at the hospital so often. Right. <laughs> and once in a while, yeah. grace shines upon you. <laughs> <laughs> right. But it's possible that you could have been helping someone who's a neighbor of yours in a very deep and rich way, and that would have also certainly counted as being meaningful. So, what I'm trying to do is actually open up an account of meaning rather than closing it down and insulating it within a particular context that we're, we're inclined to call work. How did it happen? And I, I'm just raising this as a rhetorical question. How did it happen that meaning became something that was so insulated, so confined, so packed into a particular box? Why not open up, so to speak, open up the doors of the house, let the air in, let, let the wind through, and see what happens as we, op- as we allow ourselves to, to discover meaning in various and sundry contexts? So, The short answer to your question is that I see those examples as being clues or pointers to 
evidence for meaning that can be more and more ubiquitous in our lives. No, that was lovely. I think it's interesting too, and you already know this, I've seen some physicians, they have shifts that other people don't want to work, or let's say it's a holiday, or it's a special day for a lot of people, they will come in and work. Or maybe they're not even working, and they'll come in and just like hang around. And it's perplexed me. I was like, why wouldn't they want to be home with their families or be in their community or go ride their bike? And I think it gets back to your point of maybe like they associate just being in the confines of a hospital as housing that meaning. And my understanding is all the other aspects of their life have just atrophied and they don't know how to go through the motions of being a good neighbor or being a you know, doing their civic duty as well. So that's what I fear for a lot of residents who are in training, because I think they get this sense that something is amiss. And they see the end line sometimes, other physicians, that their entire identity, they derive meaning only from inside this box that's called the hospital. And I think that alarms some residents. Rightly so. But I would hope that some of them would have some loving kindness and compassion for those who have made that mistake. Because we do know, as you nicely said, that a number of older people today are facing their own possible existential opening or perhaps a day of reckoning because they've, they've now retired. And you can see how quickly they age because they don't, they say, they say, and I've heard this frequently that I'm irrelevant. I'm useless don't really have a place anymore, and so forth. Now, I don't think that's an indictment of older people. I think that's an indictment of what I've been talking about, namely total work. So we see this, and it should open up the capacity for us to feel such a level of compassion for people who have continued to make that mistake. Now, as to your point about those who come into the hospital when they don't need to, it's also we should broaden our inquiry a little bit to see that it's not just that they're coming in Mm -hmm. because they don't have anything else. We have to ask ourselves, well, wait a minute, what what happened to society that such that it became so attenuated, so desiccated that various institutions and social forms have been eroded? I'll give you but one example here, and I could could speak at some length about this. I'll give you two, I'll give you one argument, one example. So a number of sociologists have spoken about social atomization which is the view according to which we begin to see ourselves more and more as individuals, self-standing individuals. And I think you can see evidence for this as more and more people are not marrying or marrying later or having fewer children. There are other reasons why people are not having children or having them later. But I think one reason is atomization. You start to see more and more people, quote unquote, bowling alone or living alone. Yeah. Living as singletons. Yes. So it's not just this person coming in at this time. Who is experiencing this? This is this is actually a broader social predicament we're facing today. And the other, the example I wanted to use comes from Robert Bella et al.'s book Habits of the Heart, which I believe was written in the seventies, but I may be wrong about that. It's a book written in collaboration with a number of other wonderful sociologists, and it's it's more or less discussing the erosion of civic society already then, and that's 30, 40 years ago. So that's even before the heyday of neoliberalism. 
So remember when I was a kid, I'm older than you. <laughs> These are not great examples, but I'm going to just give them to you. That there used to be something called Kiwanis Club and Rory Club. Oh, yeah. And, okay, oh, you yeah. remember that. Okay, you're not. <laughs> yeah, I'm following you. Yeah. Okay, okay good. I'm, I'm 41. <laughs> so I think you might be a little younger, but you notice that they're not around anymore. And I'm not saying those were great state clubs. They're a bit frumpy, a bit old manish and such. I'm just telling you that the existence of these clubs was a sign was one particular sign that there need to be forms of social entanglement that go beyond the intimate sphere of the family. And I'm using Hegelian language here, in the abstract, the abstract understanding of the nation state. Right? We need various and sundry intermediating forms in order to ensure that there are forms of socialization and forms of sociality available to us. And they're not, they're not around very much anymore. It's very hard to find genuine social forms. And I would submit the very obvious point here that social media is more like a parasite on the erosion of civil society than it is any kind of solution. Yeah, no, that's heavy and completely true, at least in my personal experience. I grew up, I used to go bowling with my family. So when you brought up that example, it reminded me just seeing the community there. And you're right, it, it's challenged me. Maybe it's not that individual doctor who might be quote you know deficient but i now i'm wondering like what environment are they coming from or going home to Mm -hmm. and it's interesting too at work for us we sometimes these are going away as well it's the doctor's lounge right usually it's behind a closed door there's a nice refrigerator with with some food in there some soda in there some fruit as well some lounge chairs where you can just talk and those are being removed as well so it's interesting that it's happening outside the hospital and then inside the hospital. So it's really intriguing to me because I got the sense that you said, you know, it's when you go in, you're basically, you know, a cardiologist or a GI doctor. Some of them have said, like, I'm a plumber, you know, like I'm just moving blood from one point to another in a, in a crude sense, just like a plumber at home. Sure. But there is that socialization as well. There's that social connectedness. But if we keep removing those parts of the hospital, then when we go in, we will literally be almost robots where we are just doing the plumbing and that is it. Yeah, that is a very shocking. I don't know how. So you, you need the ideologically sophisticated language in order to maintain that situation once you've eroded what some theorists have called third spaces. Yeah, yeah. That's very troubling. It's, it's extraordinarily troubling development because there should at some point be, if this were to continue to move in that direction, a fundamental severance or disconnect between the situation on the ground, what it's actually like to be a so-called plumber or whatever, and the language being used to describe what's happening. Explain. I'm not following. Come back to the physicians. So I have philosophized with, with some physicians over the years. But as you might imagine, <laughs> only so many because many of them don't have much leisure. <laughs> so in philosophy requires leisure, I would argue. So one, in preparation for this conversation, I asked a couple of people, physicians, what they had to say about the matter of burnout among physicians and such. And one who had just finished his residency said that it's, it is a real phenomenon, to be sure. And he also said, if you're not working all the time, then you feel guilty. This, at least, not such as true for everyone, but it certainly was true for him, and it's true for I'm sure a number of people. Now, 
you can ask yourself, how long could guilt and sophisticated ideological language that says you're here for you're here because you have a calling, you're here because you have a calling, you're here because you have a calling, and so forth. <laughs> how long can that justification hold up if it's the case that you continue to try to get more and more work out of the worker? At some point, the jig is up. So this is why Google <laughs> is very good at this, actually. <laughs> Google has a different approach. Google headquarters, the Googleplex, actually has, it used to have free meals, it has yoga classes. You see what it's doing, it's the soft, <laughs> it's the soft approach. Let's keep it so lovely here so that you can always kind of wend about the campus, but you never leave the campus. <laughs> let's, allow you to, let's allow you to bump into people so that you can have serendipitous encounters. That's the language, <laughs> right? That's kind of language of entrepreneurship innovation. Right. Right. So that's the softer approach. It's not, it's, it's, it's not so draconian or dystopian. Yes, they want you to be more productive, but they see that if they release some valves here and there by letting you do yoga, letting you have free lunch, letting you have a free transport to the campus, actually calling a campus, right? Seeing it as if it were the case <laughs> of a college campus. Right. Then it's going to create a certain atmosphere of devotion. So that's a that's a pretty good <laughs> that's a pretty good total work model <laughs> if it wants to sustain itself as such. The other they one is it. what's that? They nailed it for not being uh, you know well versed in the humanities and philosophy. They seem to do quite well in that regard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm obviously being a little bit tongue in cheek right. here. It's it's a very good structure if it's the case that you want to keep workers relatively happy, quote unquote, and productive. But you're going to have a problem whenever it's the case that you try to continue to increase productivity and efficiency to a point at which the ideological language can no longer support the conditions on the ground. So I'm not calling that a revolution. I'm just saying that mm -hmm. <laughs> that's very difficult to sustain once you hit a certain threshold. So what happens once that realization sets in Then you say, look, I'm no longer wed to this you know, ideological notion that this is my calling. Like you said, the jig is up, enough is enough. There are two approaches here, two basic approaches. One has been taken by some people in the medical profession as they begin to call out burnout and moral injury, and they seek institutional reform. I can't speak too much about that line of inquiry, but certainly it's been going on. I think you probably know more about it than I. So there certainly is an institutional dimension that needs to be underscored. On the personal front, I think the difficulty lies with the fact that debt is used as a way to ensure commitment to a profession. Mm. So that's, that's one little wrinkle <laughs> in, in the plot. But apart from that, you would at least begin to come to a certain kind of existential freedom in and through the realization that you'd be in right relation with work, as I was arguing before. You'd come to be, you would, you would commit only as much as necessary. You would care to the, to the extent that you're able, you would pick up the work and put it down at the drop of a hat when, it's, when, it's, when you're able to do so. I'm setting aside time is when you're on call and, when, when, when you're on call and such. Mm -hmm. I'll play devil's advocate. For the personal point of view, that's about as good as it gets, particularly given the, given the debt commitment. Right. I'll play devil's advocate. If one were to do that, then he or she can't be the best physician. Oh, okay. What would you say to that? Yes. What do you mean by the best physician? You'll be a subpar physician. This clearly isn't your calling. You're not dedicated to it. You're lazy. You're a snowflake. You want the easy way out. You're not a hard worker if you want to do those other things that you described. 
Well, so far, those are more like ad hominem attacks. I don't have criteria for what makes for the best physician <laughs> in an objective sense. <laughs> but, but that's awesome. Like, I think it's hilarious, but it also brings up like, what is your definition of a best physician? And I think if you had to kind of pin me down, I'd say one that is at a prestigious university. And I know we talked about this. One's at an elite university, one who publishes often, one who gives speeches and grand rounds on the national stage, one who is invited as a keynote speaker. If you do those other things, you won't achieve this. But those aren't, you're not talking about the best physician, you're talking about the <laughs> best, best networker, best self-promoter. You see what I mean? We're talking about best physician. So we need to know what the, what the scope of that is. So we're getting into a philosophical inquiry. First of all, it would be helpful to know what we mean by physician. And I don't want to be—I <laughs> don't want to get too too philosophical here. But let's suppose we knew what a physician was. Then it wouldn't—a physician is not the same thing as a keynote speaker. You can be a great keynote speaker and not a great physician, and vice versa. Clearly, they're analytically separate or distinct. Or even it depends what we mean by publishing a lot. That sounds like a researcher to me or a scholar. You can be a great scholar and not be someone who's great at bedside manner and vice versa. That is very true. Yeah, and you're a great clinician, etc. So we're not even clear about what that means, but let's just suppose we do know what best means and we're limiting it to the scope of physician rather than to the accomplished person you were describing before. It seems to me that I could actually pretty easily respond by saying the one who's able to be one-pointed and concentrated while being at the matter of hand, without any kind of mental proliferation, it's a Buddhist term, without any kind of mental noise, and is able to do it to the best of one's ability, while picking it up and putting it down when necessary, has come to what it is to be the best at that thing. I don't see any case being made for the Michael Jordans of the world who obsess over the sport at hand outside of the sport at hand. You can do that, but I don't see what it adds. Mm-hmm. So when I philosophize with people, let's for the moment say this is work. I actually think it's contemplation, but let's just say it's work. I don't do it all day long, but that doesn't mean I'm not dedicated to what it is that I'm doing. I'm very dedicated. Every time I have a philosophical conversation, I, have, I usually have about two a day, each of which is untimed. I am here and nowhere else. There's nowhere else I want to be. There's nothing else I wish to be doing. I'm completely concentrated at the, the heart on the heart of the matter that we're exploring together. But if you say, well, why don't you do that 10 times a day? I don't see your point. To me, that's a, the Buddhist <laughs> point here is that that's pretty greedy. I like, this is lovely. This is beautiful, two savoring, wonderful conversations a day. In what sense outside of some kind of productive factory model would it make sense for me to have 10? I would actually see that my, my so-called performance, <laughs> if we're using that language, yeah. <laughs> would be diminished at some point, right? right? I've just noticed that if I have about three or four a day, hmm, interesting. I actually begin to notice that I don't have the level of attention that I had during two. Yeah. And that uh, reminds me, it's like you have enough. And I think, you know, you feel it, you sense it, you know it. And some people, it seems like they have an insatiable desire for more. Which is, a, which is, again, another way of, that would be another definition of dukkha. Dukkha is, an insati- is, is instantiated as the insatiable desire for more. So the best physician, then, would be someone who's able to actually perform to the best of his or her abilities, to the best of his or her competencies, 
what needs to be done for the sake of the one who needs to be cared for, the ones who need to be cared for, and then, like a matter of beauty, would be able to let it go when it needs to be let go. Remember, after enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Right. That should be our mission statement. I'm just going to play back the recording. <laughs> Forget about the Hippocratic Oath. We've got, we've got a new one here. <laughs> Tell me a little bit. A lot of people, you know, challenged you before. I'll challenge you now. A lot of people go through medicine and they say, look, you know, my parents wanted me to be a physician. Society thinks I'm smart. I make a lot of money. Why is this a problem and why do I need meaning? Aren't all those other things enough? Why is this a problem? Well, I think they get the sense that, I suppose they get the sense that something's amiss. And then everyone says, look, you know, you make a lot of money. People respect you. People think you're intelligent. Isn't that enough to kind of squash that feeling that something's amiss? This is an easy one. I thought you were going to challenge me. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, sure. You're going to give me a softball question. <laughs> I'm a nice host. <laughs> yes, I can tell. Thank you. <laughs> Gratitude coming your way. <laughs> well, look, let's just go to the person's experience. Let's call the person Jane. So Jane's telling herself this. Jane's saying, I feel this sense of offness or something is amiss or awry. But then... I have to say, I'm not the person living in Somalia or whatever else. I've got it good. Here are the ways I have it good. And she writes it down on a piece of paper because she's used to being in medicine. And then she makes a, a yeah. spreadsheet or something. A very sophisticated color-coded spreadsheet that she has. Maybe she t- turns it into, I'm just kidding. But she may turns into some kind of study guide. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Okay. But all I have to do is sit with Jane for a moment and ask her, okay, now you've done all that. Are you still dissatisfied? If you just look inside yourself, has a sense of dissatisfaction gone away? It hasn't. These are just post hoc justifications or rationalizations for something that in her heart she knows is not right. And that's the trouble. People will live their whole lives providing all these kinds of sophisticated mental or intellectual edifices mm-hmm. that are lovely and ornate, like some kind of Gothic or Coco church. But at the heart of it is the fact that she hasn't been able to assuage the actual sense of dis-ease that she still feels. That's the reply. And I don't see any way around that except what Thich Nhat Hanh said, the way, the way of suffering is the way of liberation, he once said. It's a paraphrase. You actually have to examine the suffering. You can't run away from it in and through intellectual sophistications. And that's mm-hmm. the, that's, that, that would be the shadow side, so to speak, of a number of highly intellectual types. I know, I've been there. <laughs> I, know <it's, laughs> I know it's like to use the intellect in ways that allow you to seemingly ferret or explain away something that in your being or heart you know to be the case. Mm. So you can say whatever you want to about how there could be prestige, a certain amount of money, it's laudable, you, your parents are proud of you, your parents' friends tell their kids about how great Jane is, and so forth. But what happens, you know, this is not meant to be some kind of, uh, <laughs> not some kind of filmic moment, some piece of cinematography, but what happens at 2 a.m.? What is it like to be alone with yourself? Remember Pascal, all of man's problem, paraphrasing, all of man's problems stem from man's inability to be alone with himself in a room. So what happens when you do that, when someone says, you should go on this 10-day meditation retreat, 
<laughs> and you think, yeah, that's a great idea. And you go on it and you find the very thing that you thought wasn't there anymore. And not only have you found it, but it starts to become more and more cute and palatable, or palpable, I should say. That is precisely what no amount of self-narration is going to, going to get rid of. But I imagine that's the easier route, going down the self-narration, kind of sabotaging ourselves, giving us more projects. The joke I make when people say that is that that's the harder route that appears as if it were the easier route. (laughs) I was speaking with a man the other day, and he said something like, um, another very sharp man, and he said, letting go, that's really hard. It's the hard thing to do. Someone who's used to being a total worker, and he's been very successful in the financial industry, and then left it behind. I said, no. Letting go is the easiest thing to do. Holding on is the hardest thing to do because you now see what's happened as you held on to this belief. It entailed this, which entailed that, which entailed that, and so forth. You're just spreading. <laughs> you're spreading your disquiet. <laughs> you're, you're spreading it out. No, the easiest thing to do, contrary to popular opinion is actually to go back and examine yourself remember socrates the unexamined life is not worth leading the claim is that the examined life isn't indeed the life most worth leading that sounds perhaps elitist or judgmental but it's i would say it's more like an empirical observation look at people who've been examining their lives how are they oh well if they're doing it in the proper way they feel peaceful and energetic and interested and loving and open and on and on. The apparent easy route is the hardest route and the apparent hardest route is in fact the easiest route. If we just see that now, (laughs) we will save two decades of suffering. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think, I mean, you would agree with me, I assume that people get those flipped quite frequently. Oh, definitely. That's the problem. They keep flipping it. But I imagine the route that they think is, I don't want to get this wrong. So the easy route, the true easy route, they don't recognize. And the hard route they embrace. And I imagine it's because, might be projecting here, it's because it's the comfortable path. It's a path in which they know. Yes. It's also the case that they double down on some form of being a total worker in some sophisticated um, mode. So, right, the parent, so they they think, ah, the easiest thing to do here will just be to get myself involved in a number of doings that will show me that this will just effervesce or go away. And sometimes I call that the problematization of the world. They'll construe what's happening in themselves. I know we're being a little vague here, so let's try to be clear. Let's come back to Jane. Jane realizes that there's something wrong, and she has a sense that things don't quite add up. She has a sense that the life she's, let's try to be a little more specific, even though it's still going to be broad. The life she's leading is not quite the life she wants to lead. And she doesn't know what she means when she says that to herself. Or she might say to herself, I don't really know how to live. I've heard that many times before. I really don't know how to live. Okay, then she says that, and then she thinks, oh my goodness, that's scary. And then she proliferates all these things that she can do. She can do this health self-help program. She can go to this camp or something, or she can go through facilitations, or she can go through breath work. Or so she might go that kind of well-being route, or she might 
double down on some kind of accolades. Well, if I just get this postdoc and then set myself up for this really great clinic, which also has a wonderful research arm and do this and the other from at a prestigious university, such as Harvard or Princeton or Yale or Stanford or whatever, then what she's done is she's made, she, she thinks A, that, that what she just said is going to go away when the circumstances are favorable and therefore, she's come to think of happiness or eudaimonia or meaning or whatever word you want to put there as if it were the sort of thing that could be dependent upon circumstances. And the key thing to a lot of these Eastern and Western philosophical and religious teachings is a very key thing is that any fundamentally abiding notion of happiness is such that it can be contingent on circumstance or outcome. You can find that in Stoicism. You can find that in Eastern teachings. If you look around, it's clear. And it's clear in our own experience. It's very clear in our experience that if you're going to be someone who is happy or content, amazingly, it's the sort of thing that's available to you regardless of circumstance, regardless of how things turn out, regardless of whether or not you placed well, regardless of whether or not you got into this program or that one, and so on. So come back to what I was saying. I'm saying that what Jane is doing is a form of unfortunate obfuscation. She's making things unnecessarily less clear for herself as she proceeds down what is in actuality the harder route. The easier route, the one we keep neglecting, is the following. When I say to myself, I don't know how to live, what do I mean? Begin the inquiry there. Obviously, I'm a philosopher. I believe in the, the, the idea of, of asking questions that continue to go further. But it's not that I just happen to believe it. I've actually seen, so to speak, the proof in the pudding in my own life and in that of others. It's just very clear from a psychological as well as a philosophical point of view that the more we turn away from something, the more it continues to return to us in a different form. Whereas the more we actually turn around, so to say, and look at it and gently, gingerly, invitingly confront it, the more it begins to seem as if it wasn't what we thought it was. So I'll give an example from a meditation retreat just to make this a little bit vividly clear. A lot of people are afraid of physical pain. And when you're at, when you're involved in long meditation retreats in which you're sitting in austere cross-legged positions, naturally pain arises. Our ordinary conception of pain is that it's like an entity that's solid and persistent. But if you actually were to go more deeply into the, the meditative experience, you find that that's not true. So one thing you'd be to notice is that pain is actually in your own phenomenological experience is undulating, vibrating energy consisting of different intensities and so to speak colors and such now i only provide that as an example just to see that from the gross point of view from the view from beyond we were freaked out we think oh my goodness there's pain in my knee is that is the knee compromised what's going to happen if i don't get up now oh wait there's 30 more minutes while i'm sitting here i have to sit in a dictum which is a, in a mobile position am i doing permanent damage to my knee and so on and so on and so on right or I can begin to look at what's actually happening and see that it's not really that big of a deal. That's, that's, that's the amazing, the easy route is so interestingly amazing because you start to look <laughs> at things more closely and they, they lose the cast fear. They lose the cast of trepidation. They lose the cast of the, this kind of unfamiliar angst. There's a certain intimacy you start to have with the sorts of things that before you thought were solid, persistent, enemy, yeah. and so on. And they're not like that. And it's interesting, too, I imagine some of those solid, persistent cats are stories that we've chosen to accept 
or other people's ideas as well? Yes, certainly. They are many things. So they come from many sources. They can come from social conditioning. They can come from your own personal stories. What's really interesting about the experience I'm describing is that we think of the mind as being this insular container, but really it's this fluid, I'm using metaphors here, this fluid, porous conglomeration, social, institutional, historical, economic, personal, psychological, beliefs, feelings, impulses. <laughs> it's, a, it's a mess. It's a swirling mess initially, but it's an interesting swirling mess. Let's think about what you said before about the claim about the, the, the best physician. So this would be someone who's not lazy, right? Well, for example, and I called that, I joked and called it ad hominem. Well, the claim that you don't want to be lazy has a very interesting historical trajectory. It really does come once again from Calvinism and Puritanism. And laziness or idleness were really seen as being fundamentally a part of a disorderly and probably also sinful life. Yeah, what is it, idle hands or the work of the devil? Yes, that's right. Yeah, but it really became, as people would say today, weaponized <laughs> at, at that time, right? Yeah, so it wasn't as if just being idle was a bad thing per se. It was bad in terms of the soul, bad in terms of what it, how it was corrupting you. But now we don't even know what we mean exactly by laziness. It, it's just seemingly one of the worst sorts of things that one can be, and therefore it motivates someone <laughs> to not be lazy. But it's not as if you just thought that up today. But people seem to believe that their mind just has this thought that arises like, oh, I, I'm lazy, therefore I should be productive. Ask yourself where that came from. You didn't make that up. There are so many different causes and conditions to use Buddhist language that led to the moment which the thought, I'm lazy, arose. So this is another way of getting back to a plea or an apologia for the examined life. The examined life is an examination of not only the seemingly personal contents of mind, it's the examination of the totality of life as it presents itself to us in our experience. Speaking of experiences, in residency, kind of broadly generalizing, one group will go straight through education. They take no breaks. Another group, maybe they had a career before, maybe they took time off, maybe they had time to study a different degree. It seems to me, and the people that I talk to about burnout and the wellness work, it seems to me the people who have taken time off, in my mind, I conceptualize it as they are more active. They have asked, what do I not want to do, whatever they were doing before, and what do I want to do? And I think sometimes I see more meaning in that group because they're not waiting for that chance to be accepted into a program or that chance to score highly on a test. Whereas the first group who went straight through, I get more of the sense it's always, like you said, when something happens, then they will be happy. So my question, and I want to hear your thoughts, how do we get that group that goes straight through that doesn't have a chance to have obvious opportunities to examine their life? How do we get them to examine their life? Okay, that's a good question. Let's have, let's have fun with it. So I would agree with you that the ones who've lived more itinerant lives are probably such as to be ones who've asked deeper questions. So we can, so we can wonder about how we add a certain zigzag <laughs> into the straight approach. And right. this is going to be going against the grain because the, the straight through approach is the one that tends to be advocated implicitly or even explicitly by our educational establishment. 
Yeah, I mean, it's the one, it's the, those who are lauded. You look at the, I used to be in academia before I left, and you look at the one who has an, is an associate professor, and it's like, how old is that person? Like, yeah. Yeah, you know? <laughs> yeah. That person nailed the dissertation in five years, which is pretty quick in the humanities. That person went immediately from the prestigious university to the prestigious assistant professorship. That person teed up the manuscript for the book that needs to be written or to qualify for tenure, among other requirements. It's published by prestigious um, university press. I won't bore listeners anymore with this, but ultimately you see, wow, that's the straight and narrow path. But nobody's asking, as we're asking today, about whether or not that person is actually fundamentally fulfilled. Uh, it's possible, but I would venture that it's doubtful. So let's return to the person who's going straight through in medicine. So my fun proposal would be to introduce a gap year, or at least the possibility of a gap year. So that maybe, maybe it's the case. There's no way to probably institutionalize this quickly, but it would be interesting to say, look, what if between finishing an undergraduate degree and starting medical school, you have one year. And what if it were somehow, I don't want to gamify this. I don't particularly like gamifications, but what if it were the case that it were at least there are invitations to cultivate yourself in ways that yes, invitation to cultivate yourself in ways that we're not going to go on a CV or resume. Again, I think among the younger set, everything gets CVized. Right, so you don't just play the piano. <laughs> you <laughs> the piano at age five somehow goes on the yep. CD. <laughs> that's right. I mean, so that's not doing the the beautiful thing about OTM or leisure is that you do you're involved in things as ends in themselves. So you play the piano for the sake of the beautiful playing the piano. You don't play the piano for the sake of putting on the CV. Or if you do, if you do volunteer in a community, you don't do it probably for the sake of how it's going to look in terms of optics on the CV, because you were helping indigenous peoples in Costa Rica with rural healthcare, let's say. That's just one practical proposal. Because the difficulty is that, and the other part, is so long as we're having fun with it, is that you need to have some way of restructuring the cost of, of our undergraduate education so that that weren't such, such a driving force in people's motivation to get through this, that, and the other as quickly as possible so that they can begin earning a living. Let's say hypothetically we can't re- restructure the gap here. We can't restructure undergraduate ed- education. What gets me sometimes about people in medicine trainees, you know, I didn't appreciate humanities or art before getting into medicine, but while I was taking care of patients, it's very easy to understand like, wow, that person loves this other individual or wow, this person, they light up when they talk about how they work on their car or wow, this person keeps showing me, you know, photos of their paintings. So I got the sense I had a very easy way of seeing into like other quote, meaningful things that people had. So I think that's a beautiful thing about medicine is there's that human connection and it's not the only way to connect with a human but it baffles me and helped me understand why some residents are surrounded by such humanity yet view it in such a cold clinical connect this pipe to that pipe, pay me lots of money and I'll go home type of way. Yeah, I can, I can try. Uh, I think that would require some of the, sometimes I want to answer you in a way that invokes a long history of ideas. I'll try to keep it middle length in this case. Let's consider what P.F. Snow, a novelist and I think a scientist, also wrote when he talked about the two cultures 
many years ago. He suggested that there were two, at that time, insurmountable cultures, or what's called them worldviews or dispensations, one which was more in the humanities and the other one which was in the sciences. We have to imagine this some time ago because the humanities since then is not always oriented toward humanistic inquiry. We've gone through two culture wars at this point, one in the early 90s to mid 90s, the other one more recently. So it's not entirely clear that humanistic inquiry is the is the telos or is the center of humanistic investigations. But let's, for the sake of a simple story, suppose it is the case and were the case. It's not just that you're studying different disciplines. You're actually learning a fundamental, different, fundamentally different way of viewing the world. It's hard to put that any differently, so I'll try to just spell that out a little bit. From um, a natural scientific point of view, you're looking at the world in terms of what Ken Wilber might call it or its mechanisms, causes, etiologies, structures, biological, physical, chemical, and so forth. You're learning to see, it's, people don't realize that they're learning to see the world. It's a way of seeing, not just a form of discipline. It's a cultivation of our heart, mind, spirit, or our being that's happening. So that there's an upside to that, to it, learning certain virtues such as disinterestedness, measuredness, skepticism, capacity to weigh and weight things in certain manners. There are a lot of upsides, but there are some downsides that I don't think are often spoken about to it. Yeah, to it that you begin to see most of life in mechanistic or inert terms. You don't look at a tree in the way an indigenous person would and see it as having animus or animation. This is what Max Weber was pointing out when he talked about what he called the disenchantment of the world that occurred with the rise of modern science. It disenchants, it it demagics the world and replaces it with physical mechanisms and laws of nature. Obviously, it's allowed for certain forms of technological and scientific progress, but the shadow side is what I'm trying to point out here. It tends to make you cold and indifferent. Because so now let's go to the humanities. At its best, the humanities is a cultivation of you might call it the spirit. You would learn. It's not very hypothetical because this isn't really quite my education. But you would learn by reading, for example, works of literature, the the depths of emotions, interactions, motivations. You would learn. Let's put it very simply. You would learn about human complexity in an irreducible way. When I say you learn about it, maybe that's too tepid of a word here. At its best, you would come to develop a certain sensibility, which is also a sensitivity. It's a bit like how you look at an artwork. If you were to look at it from the sensibility I'm trying to describe, it's, it's, it, mm-hmm. it would not be disinterested. It would be that there's a beauty that begins to fill you in such a way as to have a relationship with it. Yes, You're learning a kind of intimacy or an approach by approach, I mean coming closer to the work of art. So then you would actually be reading works of literature, and you'd be reading, you'd be looking at art, and you'd be reading, and you'd be studying religion, and, and and you'd be studying philosophy, and there would be kind of a thickening of your felt understanding of human complexity. So there's the upside is that there's this really rich, textured way of being in the world when it comes to consciousness right this the i the i's and we's out there not just the it's and they's 
or it's it's in uh, thems. So that's the upside of the humanistic inquiry. I should say the downside is a certain clumsiness often when it comes to analysis of the physical and natural world, and a certain clumsiness also at times when it comes to institutional analysis. So I'm just I'm not trying to play favorites here, but you asked me right. about how it's possible for a medical resident to come in and feel cold and indifferent and only think about things in plumbing terms or as being interesting. This is the one I hear often. This is interesting or this is an interesting case or I'm interested in. That tepid language is the language at its worst of science when it's severed from fundamental cultivation of our felt understanding of human complexity. So it's not and it's not entirely that person's fault, though I think it would be wise for that person to brush up on Dostoevsky and others. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, pri- it's, it, it's partly the fact that the liberal arts died some time ago, and your education, wherever it is that you went to school, your scientific education probably didn't introduce you to very much humanistic inquiry. Yes, personally speaking, I went into an extremely technically focused field, and I make the joke I couldn't write a sentence when I was 21. And people laugh, and I'm like, no, honestly, I, I couldn't. Like, everything was shorthand. Even when I, I mean, I couldn't type full words. And even when I write now, it's shorthand, a lot of it. And so I had this sense that, like, like you said, I would be trained and learned in the disciplines of scientific inquiry. But I knew that this, there was another side that I had to personally take the time and the effort to learn about. Yes, and one of the critiques of that particular worldview, and Sam, Sam Harris, I think, would disagree with me here, but I would disagree with him, <laughs> is that I don't think a, a fully insular scientific worldview enables one to experience meaning. So if, if it's just mechanisms or if it's just physical processes, so to speak, turtles all the way down, all the way up, I don't see where there's a kind of animation, a connection, a liveliness, a significance that can that can cross that that divide. For what it's worth, I should just add that humanistic you know, I, I describe humanistic inquiry in a way that was rather lovely and open, but I just don't know to what extent that that is still true. I've mainly had that experience with my philosophizing with people. So I'm getting a very intimate look into their lives. And so I'm noticing that I'm not just speaking with people in the tech or, or finance industries or even just with those artists. I've spoken with people who are Muslim Sufis. I've spoken with people who have various and sundry um, physical disabilities. I've spoken with people whose second or third language is English. Over the last 10 years, you know, I've spoken with people all the way around the world, ranging from the United States to Scandinavia, to South America, to Australia, to the Middle East, and so on. I'm only making that out not to toot my own horn. That's not the point. But the point, rather, is to just to say that I've had that education, that cultivation in and through thick, dense, rich experiences with other people. And so it, it tends to be a way that kind of pumps up the compassion. It enables something. My academic training was very much quasi-scientific, if you will, right? It, because you're still involved in a form of disinterested inquiry into a humanistic endeavor. Mm. That's the trick. The trouble is it's become research, as Heidegger would call it. But what I'm describing here in conversations is not research. It's the unfolding of a mutual understanding as the horizon of intelligibility becomes clear and clearer to us. We get to know each other, <laughs> to put it simply. 
Yeah. And there's something that's like to know someone that's a little bit, that's very different from what it's like to analyze a text of some kind. Yeah. And, and that's precisely what I'm trying to do with the podcast and the book. It's, there are, as you know, studies upon studies of burnout and wellness, and they're in the journals. But there is something I think special and unique and different about sitting down with somebody like you do with people all around the world for the last 10 years that that's not captured in a randomized control trial or not captured in a study that we can publish in a journal. I agree. Nice. Andrew, anything else you'd like to add? Caution the listener, encourage the listener, challenge the listener. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I love that. When we talk about burnout, we're talking about we're talking about a few different related things. The first is a sense of intense ongoing exhaustion. And you know the literature better than I here. The second one, though, is a sense of really losing any idea of giving a damn, any idea of caring, any fundamental sense. So typically, I think what's unfortunate here is that we start to go forward and we start to ask what can be done in the case of burnout. But I think so much, so much wiser is to go back, right? Can we go upstream? This is what I usually say. Can we go upstream or then downstream? What happened to the person? in terms of that person's thinking, institutional engagement, and so on, that actually led that person to a point at which not caring amid exhaustion became the modus operandi. And so what we've basically been doing today is unpacking, among other things, unpacking a number of very deep misconceptions. And if you actually let go of a number of those misconceptions, you won't find yourself being susceptible to burnout or at least as susceptible to burnout as others are. I agree. And I think a lot of the listeners would agree. I think an easy way to understand that from our world is, like you said, here's a you know prescriptive solution. And it doesn't acknowledge or doesn't bring up the question of how did we get here? Why are we here? Can we talk about this? And it's instead, it's go meditate. And like you said, go make a desk in your in your room, and then it'll be fixed. But like you said, if you don't have the right mind, if you don't grasp at these questions, who am I? What is total work? What influence? What kind of worldview do I take? I am of the mind that those solutions are secondary importance at that moment. Yes. Therefore, let's not make the ongoing mistake of believing that the apparently hardest route is actually the easiest route yeah now i gotta rewrite my book thank you (laughs) (laughs) if you got any value out of this please consider doing one of three things one tell a colleague about this project two sign up for the curated quarterly newsletter three check out the book on amazon It's an easy-to-read, engaging how-to manual for trainees, supported by data and evidence-based solutions.